You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and said, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How awesome that the snow came yesterday and not today. And parents, how great that the snow did not come during the school week, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm James. I am an, uh, an elder, part of the preaching team here. We're going to be starting the Life of David series. I'm very pumped. Very, very pumped about this. I think a lot of people um, also are, um, unless you're not, and that's okay. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to take today to kind of do two things. This this uh, message is kind of in two parts. We're going to spend some time looking at why we would study David. What is the Old Testament kind of about? What, why do this? Why not just read the Gospels on repeat? Um, and we're going to take a look at David. Why? And then we're going to look at the scripture for the day as well. So kind of put that, uh, what we've learned into practice, if that makes sense. Uh, normally, what we do is we take a book of the Bible and we spend a long time going through it, right? We took two years on the book of Matthew. We just spent basically the entire school year on 1 John. Uh, we've done Exodus in the past. We're going to do that with the life of David, and we're going to be looking at uh, 1 and 2 Samuel in the Bible. There's no book of David in the Bible, in case you're new to that. But you can grab a Bible in the back, by the way, if you kind of want to follow along. Um, but uh, And today, we're not going to have uh, time for Q&A. If you want to have ask questions about the sermon, send them to me, James. Garcia on Slack, you can do that or talk to me after service today. But we're going to read the Bible and let it speak to us. 
So I'd like to uh, look at why we study David. And so uh, here are some popular images of David. You're probably familiar with these, at least a little bit, right? The statue of David there, or this one that was probably in like your children's book about the Bible, right? The David, this, I don't know why he has curly hair here, but that's okay. He, this is great. He's playing the lyre with the sheep and it's a beautiful image. Um, and what I want to do is, why, why are we studying David? Well, let's, let's think about who this guy is. This guy is not the, the Messiah in the storyline of the Bible. This guy is, is a, not an ideal life, as we're going to find out. I'm going to try to avoid too many spoilers. But David's life is not an ideal life, but it is a real life. And maybe except for the David and Goliath story, like everything else is commonplace for a king, like very, uh, very relatable to, to perhaps our circumstances outside of the, king's, the kingship. But uh, he's a real guy. This is a real guy. So that's why we're studying him. But that, that kind of misses the point. I think a lot of times we can read the Old Testament stories and uh, treat them like a fable, like Aesop's fables, right? You probably heard Morgan uh, read the, the scripture today and read it and thought, oh, yeah, don't judge a book by its cover. That's going to be the message for today, um, right? Or beauty isn't skin deep. Uh, I don't know how you want to phrase that, that fable, but that's not what the Old Testament is about. In fact, the Old Testament can be about that at a surface level, but we miss the deeper meaning when we stop there. What we're going to be looking at here throughout the the life of David is a type, like a literary type, and all of the stories of scriptures find find their fulfillment outside of the life of David, but in the life of Jesus. We have to have that perspective as we approach this, that all of the storyline is leading to something Right, If you read Harry Potter, there's seven books, and each has its own little story, but it's all leading to something. And this is, this is difficult for us, because I think we want to take the life of David, these stories, and just immediately apply it to our own lives, right? But it would be kind of easy to say, all right, beauty is not uh, just you know, skin deep. Look at the heart, and then move on with our lives, but we're, we're missing something deeper. And Jesus himself thought this. On the road to Emmaus... On the road to Emmaus, Jesus was describing to uh, two followers who, and this is after his death, this is after his death, the, the men were perplexed. The, the men were walking along this road like, man, why did, this, why did Jesus die? I thought this was going to be a big kingship, we were going to kick the Romans out, or they had different expectations. But look what Jesus says to them about the scriptures. He says, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in John 5, 39, we see that it is the scriptures. You think you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. We could dig into the minutia of each of these verses, but, but follow the big story. All of scriptures all of scriptures from Genesis and on is leading to a fulfillment in Jesus. This is a bold claim. This is a really bold claim, and we're going to see how that kind of works itself out as we approach 1 Samuel 16. And this is a kind of a, a, a tough challenge if you think about it. A lot of the Old Testament doesn't, isn't clear about how it points to Jesus. Some of it is. You know, around Christmas time, you hear about the, the prophecies in Isaiah, you know, a child will be born. That's easy to connect to prophecy. Uh, but when we get to the Old Testament, laws, ceremonies, sacrifices, that, that's difficult to, to see its fulfillment in the person of Jesus until 
we open our eyes to what they would have meant to the audience until we really spend time studying this, until we see that Jesus himself was the sacrifice. He is the temple. So we have to kind of do some homework here, and this is why I'm, I'm kind of pumped. My past life, I was a history teacher, and so we're going to do a little bit of teaching before we get into the, the, like the preaching of the word, I guess. We kind of need to understand where are we at in the story. Um, just this week, I got to watch Empire Strikes Back with my daughters. Very exciting for me. Um, and that's a great movie, but if that's all you've seen of Star Wars, you're missing a bigger picture, right? Like, there's, there's more to the story on its own. Movie's fine, but there's a bigger story that we kind of need to understand. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, take a peek at the Old Testament up to 1 Samuel, uh, like an overview of scriptures up to this point. Buckle in. We're going we're gonna to do a little bit of history. Here we go. Gen- <laughs> this is the books of the Bible. And here's honestly, like, some people might be approaching this and going, where was David in the story? Is he, like, 20 years before Jesus or, like, 5,000 years? Like, where does this fit in? So we kind of need to understand where, where does David fit into the story? Well, a brief overview is going to be this. Genesis begins with God creating everything, putting humans in a garden. Humans are tempted to sin. You, you, a lot of you know the story, the Adam and Eve story and the fall. And how is God going to resolve that? Well, we, we have the story of Noah, and then we have God choosing a family, the family of Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has a son, Joseph. Well, he has many sons. One of them is Joseph, and the family finds themselves in Egypt. That's 50 chapters worth of the Bible in 20 seconds. Like, it's a lot. A lot to soak in. But that happens in Genesis. Then Exodus, we have the families in Egypt now. How are they going to escape slavery? That's where we find them at. And Moses leads them out of Egypt. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's not the part of the Bible where you just have to stop. Like, you can keep going. It's, it's, it's a lot of, it's difficult. But we end up with, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, a story where God gives his chosen people a law code because he wants to resolve the story of humans failing on repeat through the nation of Israel. He wants the nation of Israel to be a beacon for all the nations to come and know God. And that's where he gives them these laws and he gives them a a holy land to go into. And that's where we end up with Joshua. Uh, The people of the Exodus story were hard-hearted. They failed despite God meeting them. And so God raises up a new generation. You know, that's the wandering in the desert. And the next generation goes into the holy land. That's where we see in Joshua. And throughout Joshua, we encounter a bunch of the enemies that we're going to see throughout David's story. And then in Judges, Judges, uh, this is, you probably are familiar with some of the stories in Judges. And a lot of you know this whole backstory. But Judges has some famous Bible characters like Samson and maybe Gideon or Deborah, some of the less famous ones. But the book of Judges sounds like it would just be a bunch of like legends and sword fights and stuff. But really, the, the purpose of Judges is to show us a brutal story of that family in the Holy Land they turn to sin, and they fail. It, it, end, it ends horribly. I'm not going to even, it, it's kind of like rated R at the end, if you read the end of Judges. And that, that, then we get to, to Ruth. And Ruth is this uh, little family history story where you have Ruth and Boaz, and then, long story short, it ends with a cliffhanger. And it says, and in the end, one of their kids was, or their, one of their descendants was Jesse. Okay, so, so now I want you to take yourself into this element. We have, we have seen that humans fail time and time again. We have, uh, humans are entrusted to steward God's creation. He gives them the garden. We sin. He brings them out of Egypt, gives them a law code. We sin. Gives them judges. They sin. This is on repeat. How is God going to resolve this? He wants to be with us. It's clear 
throughout Scripture, and we had this little dot, dot, dot after the word Jesse. So we're, we're approaching 1 Samuel now going, ooh, who's this Jesse fellow? Maybe there's something there. So now we get to do the second half of this, which is going to be about 1 Samuel. When we look at 1 Samuel, we look at 1 Samuel, we have uh, many things that we could say about 1 Samuel, but there's 15 chapters of this. And I encourage you to read it. It's, it's kind of dense, so I'm going to do an overview as, uh, prior to us getting to chapter 16. The overview of 1 Samuel is this. And by the way, 1 Samuel, it's not like there was a, in 1 John, 1 John was the first letter that John wrote, and then there was the second letter that John wrote, and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's not a sequel. Um, it's actually one story, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, but they, the scroll needed to be divided in two. Um, it's kind of like when I was a kid, Titanic on VHS. Anybody? Yeah, it was in two tapes, right? And it's not first and second Titanic. It's one story. Samuel's one story. Okay, good. Didn't think Titanic was coming up today, but all right. So Samuel, the story of Samuel. How does this all tie together, and what's it about? Well, it starts with a guy named Samuel. Samuel is uh, is introduced as a judge, a prophet, and this is timeline-wise about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Think about a thousand years, the amount of stuff that's going to happen in that time period. And we have a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, we have Samuel. He's a prophet and a judge to the Lord, and his mother is Hannah. Long story short, she was, uh, she was barren, she asked the Lord for a child, and th- she sang a song when that was granted to her, and uh, this is the song that she sang in 1 Samuel 2. It's pretty long, but some things stood out. That the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And also in that song, it mentions that let not arrogance come from your mouth. That God is opposed to arrogance. And why I bring this up is because this is kind of the thesis of the whole story of Samuel. We're expecting a king here. We're expecting a king, and we don't want arrogance. So this, this, we're looking for a king in the story, and we have Jesse, dot, dot, dot. And at the end of 1 Samuel 2, we're looking for a king, dot, dot, dot. And in 1 Samuel uh, 2 through 8, we see that Samuel's kids, they're not going to be the king. They, they're not good. In 1 Samuel 8, uh, Israel as a nation wants a king. They want to be like the other nations around them who have these kings that they can look up to. And this saddens God because you know who's supposed to be their king? It's God. God's supposed to be their king. It, uh, but... God wants to work with these people, so he says, all right, Samuel, give them a king, and you have this guy, Saul, who comes to power. This is our, one of our main characters that we're going to be dealing with over the next several months as we go through the life of David, Saul. He's kind of the, at times, friend, at times, enemy. It's a complicated relationship, as relationships are. Saul rises to power. He's this guy who's head and shoulders above the rest of the kingdom. Head and shoulders above. So I don't know, the, the picture of the tallest person you know, that's Saul, which would have been very useful at that time, right, in, in battle. Uh, lots we could say there. But Saul rises to power. He's what the world wants to look to for a king. He's, he looks the part. And in 1 Samuel 11 through 13, Saul tested in battle. He fails. Um, the, short, the Cliff Notes version of that story is that Saul is supposed to destroy the Amalekites. And I know that the that part of the Old Testament is uncomfortable. But Saul is tempted by power, and he holds the king uh, ransom, not out of mercy, but Saul holds the king ransom so he can increase his wealth and steals cattle. And Saul becomes the very king that 
Israel was warned about. So Israel wants a king. Well, there you go. You got one. Saul is rejected by God because of his behavior here. The Lord in chapter 13 says, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. So Saul's rejected, and it says the Lord, Samuel goes to Saul and says this, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And you have to imagine how heartbroken Samuel would have been here, right? Samuel's going to grieve, as we're about to see. Samuel would have grieved over the loss of this king who was going to be exalted. Remember Hannah's song? The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn. So Samuel must be devastated at this tragedy, this tragic character, Saul. Was rejected. So th- this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of where we're headed into 1 Samuel 16. I hope that was a, a, a nice overview. Uh, we, we are going to have to con- kind of constantly remind ourselves of why we're reading the life of David. If we immediately pick up the moral and try to apply it to our lives, it loses its meaning. But if we pick up the moral of the story and apply it to who Jesus was, it's going to have depth. It's going to be something that stays with you. And that's what I want us to do as we approach First uh, Samuel 16. And I said I wasn't going to do spoilers, but here's the deal. In the thousand years between this, between the life of David and Jesus, it doesn't go so well. We're, we're going to look for David to be this fulfillment, and David's kids, and David, they fail. It's the repeat, the theme on repeat. How is God going to resolve this? We're looking for resolution. There's civil war. We have the Assyrians come in and conquer. We have the Babylonians come in and conquer. Eventually the Romans come in, and that's a thousand years of history in a few seconds. There's a lot to say. But the storyline of Scripture is building to something. Is it going to be David? That's where we're about to find out. Before we open up to 1 Samuel 16, I want to, I want to pray. Uh, God, I ask that as we approach the Life of David sermon series here, that we would not seek to just immediately make it about us, but that we would make it about you, that we would make it about what you're teaching us, that the fulfillment of Scripture is this this backdrop, this storyline of how you want to be with us, and we keep choosing sin. So God, as we approach the story of David, that we would have our eyes open to expectations that we have of kings and what we're looking for, and let the Scripture speak to us today as it seeks to give us a message that we can apply to our lives in light of who it was fulfilled by. Lord Jesus, please speak to us. May your spirit rest on us as we seek to open up your scriptures today. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, let's go to 1 Samuel 16 now. Now that we've done that first half, set the stage. Now we can start diving into... 1 Samuel. Here's the main point. I want to let it all out. Look at 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The main point today is that going to be God looks on the heart, right? God is going to look on the heart here. That's the message. You can see it right there in verse 7. But let's take a journey. How How do we read these scriptures? How does the scripture teach us about the fulfillment in Jesus? Let's, let's start. Let's begin. Let's practice this. In uh, chapter 16, verse 1, we see that God meets Samuel in his grief, right? Samuel's, Samuel's grieved because of this promise that is Saul rejected. He was really looking forward to Saul being that guy. And then he's supposed to fill his horn with oil. I don't know, like as one does, I, I don't know. <laughs> a horn with oil, it's kind of like a flask, a uh, flask of oil. Oil would have been used for anointing, right? And we might think of oil like olive oil, perhaps. Uh, but this isn't like 
olive oil was part of the ingredients, but it would have been a fragrant, kind of perfume-like oil used to anoint kings, anoint priests, anoint holy places. It's going to come up again. We'll, we'll see anointing even, even more here. And he's going to send you to, look at this, Jesse. Ding, ding, ding. The storyline of scripture, I'm remembering. Ruth ended with Jesse, dot, dot, dot. And we're looking for this king. Oh, man, this is it. This is it. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And that's pretty cool that God is providing for himself a king. Some of the literal translations of this really connect to seeing the heart, how God sees the heart, because it says, I have provided for. Some of the literal translations say God sees for himself a king. So God's looking among the land. He sees himself. He doesn't see the tallest guy. That's, that's what I think people are looking for with Saul, right? That's the tallest one. We see him. No, God is seeing a king for himself. It's God's sovereignty to do this. In, in uh, verses 2 through 3, Samuel is nervous about this. He's already told Saul to his face, you've been rejected. Uh, the Lord's going to anoint somebody else. And so here goes Samuel down the road with his horn of oil, which is like a, a visible sign to everybody that something's going to go down. So Samuel's nervous about this. And the Lord meets him in his nerves and says, all right, we'll go and do a sacrifice, right? Take a heifer with you. And what this would have been is a, a sacrifice that was a meal. A sacrifice that would have been a meal for the people uh, that he encountered in, in Bethlehem. You shall anoint for me him whom I tell you. So God in his sovereignty is the one declaring who is the anointed one. That's who we should be trusting as the anointed one rather than who we see, right? Who we, who we expect. And then in verses 4 through 5, I love this, that Sam just did what he was told. You can overlook some of these parts of Scripture. Like I, there, Maybe there's a backstory here. I don't know. I don't want to speculate. But maybe there's a backstory where Samuel's really wrestling with this, but he does it. And even if there wasn't a bunch of wrestling, Samuel, was he, did, he obeyed. There's obedience here. That's something we could probably do on a different sermon. But the elders, he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to him trembling. Now, why did they come to him trembling? Like, why would you, what's, what's the backstory here? Well, if you look on, uh, in chapter 15, you don't have to, but you, if you look at the end of chapter 15, you'll see that Samuel has just, he's, he's just done something that's rather impressive, maybe brutal. Uh, you know that king that Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, Agag's his name? Well, Samuel took care of business, let's say, and hacked the king to pieces, so if you're, if, if you're the Bethlehemites and you see Samuel walking down the road, you kind of got to imagine what's going on here. Well, Samuel's coming here. What's going to happen? Do you come peaceably or come in shalom? Do you come in shalom? And Samuel says, yes. Yes, I come in shalom. Come in peace. And he says, consecrate, your, you know, uh, consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And we have to put ourselves again in the shoes of the people that heard this. And imagine you're hearing the story, consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? Come with me to the sacrifice. What would that have meant? Well, if you picture it like a ceremony, that's not wrong, but it's also a feast. It's also a feast. This would have been, hey, get yourselves ready, clean yourselves up. It's going to be a fancy meal. Something really cool is about to happen. You're going to get yourselves ready. You're going to wash up. You're going to smell good. You're going to look good. This is going to be it, right? We're expecting something really cool, a, a kingly anointing. I, I want you to picture kind of as we go through some of these verses that maybe your, your father, your grandfather, somebody who's like telling you a story is telling you this for the first time. That's hard for us, but imagine you're hearing this for the first time. 
oh, cool, there's going to be a big meal. People are dressed up. And they all came. They all came. All these sons, these handsome sons of Jesse. Remember, we have that Jesse, dot, dot, dot. We're looking for one of the sons of Jesse. And he looks on Eliab. We all know Eliab, right? The famous Eliab who slew Goliath. (laughs) Not quite, right? I, I doubt most of us knew who Eliab was prior to the sermon today. Couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. But this is key. He looks on Eliab. He looked. He saw and looked on Eliab. Now, Eliab's name, name's been a a great deal at this time. Eliab's name means God is my father. God is my father, Eliab. So this guy has the name to go with the part, right? This is the, the oldest son. He's consecrated. He's handsome. He's put together. God is my father. Now, Samuel thanks, surely this is it, right? If we're thinking about this as a story and we're sitting down and hearing this, we're going, yes, God is my father. That's the one. That's the one who's going to be anointed. But the Lord says, no. Notice how the Lord says, don't look on his appearance. They all looked and he says, don't look on his appearance, which I think is one of the first takeaways for us. We, how often do we do this? How often do we look on appearances and trust that those are the truth? But that's not what the Lord looks at as we see here i have rejected him the lord sees not as man sees the lord sees not as man sees man looks on our appearance looks on outward appearances god is looking at the hearts god sees into your heart now what does that mean what is god looking at my heart for <laughs> i think a lot of times i think our word english word of heart carries a lot of the connotation of what biblical version of heart is, but sometimes heart can be like love, passionate love, emotions sort of location, whereas the brain is like logic, thoughts. Um, heart was pretty encompassing. This is what my study Bible says. It says, the heart in scripture refers to a person's inward, moral, and spiritual life, including the emotions, will, and reason. So it's not just your emotions, but it's your will, your reason, and God is looking there. He's able to see past the facade that Eliab has. God is able to see past any facades we put up as well. He he looks on your heart. He's not looking at Eliab's name. He's looking for someone who's pure in heart. Well, dang. Okay, well, luckily there's other sons. Let's see how that goes. Verses 8 through 11. Not Eliab. How about Abinadab? No. How about Shema? No. And then the, I feel bad for the other brothers. They don't even get name dropped. <laughs> uh, no, not, none of them. None of them are up to the task either. The, the Lord, Lord has not chosen these either. So is that it then? Like um, we gotta, if you're on, if you're the, the kid hearing your grandfather tell you this, like, oh man, really? I thought this was gonna be a big, like a fancy feast with the 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 cow and the anointing oil. This is supposed to be really cool, and everybody's well dressed. No. And then Samuel says to Jesse, are you sure everybody's here? Now imagine this again, sitting on the edge of your seat, there remains yet the youngest. Why isn't he there? That's, that's a different question. I think we should ask that question, perhaps not today. Why isn't David there? What is Jesse all about? And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. He's keeping the sheep. Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So you got a, a built excitement, right? Like, we're not going to, I don't know how long it takes to come in from the sheep. 
or to maybe consecrate yourselves. But they're all standing around, like on the edge of their seat, well, not on the edge of their seat, standing up waiting for this. And I have to picture that David tending the sheep is probably not consecrated like the rest of the sons, right? Dirty, smelly. This is the cliffhanger. What's happening? What's happening here? Well, verse 12 comes around and says, he brought him in. He's nameless still, right? He's nameless at this point. This youngest was brought in, and he was ruddy. Beautiful eyes. He was handsome. I love this description of David. It's like, kind of, I can't quite get what ruddy means. <laughs> I know some of you over the last few weeks have been like, what do you picture with ruddy? Um, we could talk about it at a different time. Uh, it might be he was dark complexed or had red hair. I don't know. But he, here's the point. Look on the outward appearances here. David, David kind of looks good too. That might come up later on when we talk about other stories of David being king and being tempted. But here's what I, what I take away from this. What I take away from this is that God isn't looking for perhaps how you and I would fill in the gaps here. Like, oh, Eliab, he's tall, handsome, good looking. So surely David's going to be like showing outward signs of humility. Uh, but that's, God's not looking at the outward, is he? He's looking at the heart. So you may have this outward appearance of one who's kind of got it all together or may have outward appearances of one who doesn't. God is looking at your heart. And this is him. David's probably 10 to 15 years old. God's wanting somebody with a humble heart. Somebody who's a shepherd who would have been minding the sheep while the rest of his family rejected him, while his loved ones rejected him. And he says, anoint him. Anointing, and this is where this this is. I love the word anointing. We could spend a whole bunch of time on anointing, but this connects to, to Jesus in many ways. Anointing is direct, directly translated in Hebrew as Mashiach, and I might have pronounced that wrong, but it's related to the word Messiah. Messiah, him. That's what Messiah means: is one who's anointed. And in Greek, you know how that gets translated is Christos or Christ. So we're looking for this figure who's anointed, a Messiah-like figure, a Christ-like figure. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? This is a, a, a title for him. And David is part of this type, part of this storyline. Notice that it says the spirit then rushes on David. The spirit rests on David. So there's a connection here somehow between the anointing, the kingship, the Messiah, and the spirit. The spirit coming. You can, you can contrast this with the next story, which we're not going to get into today, about Saul and the spirit. The spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. Here's the deal. This is not David's enthronement. This is not David's enthronement. You're going to have to wait many chapters, many, many chapters until 2nd Titanic or 2nd Kings or 2nd Samuel, I'm sorry, until we get to the part of the story where David sits on the throne in Jerusalem. This is not his enthronement. He's anointed and there's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardships. He's going to have, he's going to be persecuted. And, and in this, I think as we put this into practice, we see the story about David and we have to remember that this isn't ultimately about him. This is about the overall fulfillment of scripture. Now, David's story, his anointing fits into that. It's not about David ultimately. Yes, he is an unexpected king. But it's about the king who was anointed and then suffered on the cross before his enthronement. It's about the one who, whose name really, he really was the son of God. Eliab, his name is God is my father. 
in the story of the baptism of Jesus, God himself declares, this is my son. This is not about Eliab. It's not about David. It's about the fulfillment in Jesus. It's about the one on whom the spirit rested in that same baptism. This story finds its fulfillment a thousand years later when a woman anoints Jesus before his suffering. And it's about the good shepherd. I read this verse this week. It's, it's not about David the shepherd. It's about Jesus who is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is a, a great story. And it's about, G, it's about David who's unexpected, not what the world expects out of a king, but it's fulfilled ultimately not in David. See, David fails. He commits adultery. He murders. So this is not the fulfillment. God's looking at his heart. God's looking at his heart and he chooses him. But we need, we need this as well. So here's, here's what I think my takeaways are for us as we kind of uh, finish up. There's a lot we could say, a lot we could say about these, this scripture. And remember, we're, we're looking at this all being fulfilled outside of the story of David, in the story of Jesus. But what, what can we take away from this in that light? In that light, the first thing I think we need to take away is that God looks on the heart. And specifically, he's looking at your heart. He's looking on my heart. And this is, I think, initially good news. Right? This is good news that we don't have to have it together. I don't know how you got here today. But I know if I get here, sometimes my kids are slapping each other in the car, and I'm mad. And outward appearances-wise, we do not have it together. You might not have it together by outward appearances. You might feel that inwardly, but God is not concerned with your outward appearances. He's here to meet you and look at your heart. This is the, the good news, that your performance, your performance in this world is not the standard upon which God is looking at you. He's looking at your heart. And this is good news, but it's also bad news. Here's the bad news. God is looking at your heart. And all of us in here, all of us in here have sinned as we've confessed earlier. And like David in Psalm 51, we need to confess that we have a cleansing of our hearts. We need our hearts renewed. Scripture talks about this in many different ways, about us having a, uh, I like Zach will phrase it as like a heart transplant, right? We need a, a new heart, a heart of, uh, heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. We need a new heart. Jesus tells us that we need to be born again. And that's how we're going to get that new heart. And being born again is this replacement of our, of our heart of stone for heart of flesh. And we can come to the Father through him. This is the gospel message that you need to hear today. God looks on the heart, but this is beautiful. We can have a heart transplant. Here's, here's what I want you to, I read this scripture this week. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin. So he made Jesus, this is him there is Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. See, Jesus' heart was pure. He did not sin. In the fulfillment of the story of Scripture, humans time and time again fail. Who's the one who didn't? Jesus. In his story, he didn't sin. But look what happened. Look what happened. He made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, why, why did this happen? This happened for that great exchange, for you and I, for you and I to be able to have that heart tr transplant, for us to be born again, that we can have pure hearts. This is amazing. This is his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross, 
His death on the cross means that we can have righteousness and have a relationship with the Father through him. And notice that this cross doesn't have a body on it. It's empty because Jesus was placed in a tomb and resurrected. And that's the promise that we can have eternal life. We can have eternal life. This is the gospel message that you need to hear today. For some of you, for the thousandth time, for some of you, the first time. This is Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. His death and resurrection three days later as verified in history here. And why did that happen? Why did that happen? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can have that new heart. And this doesn't mean just eternal, eternal life, a new life then. It's also a new life now. We can also have a new life now. We look at these takeaways again. We'll see here the first one is God looks on your heart. And the second one is we can have a new life now and not look on outward appearances. We don't have to rely on having it together. And this is where the spirit of humility in the Christian life comes in. We're not going to be looking on outward appearances in others, and we shouldn't be trying to work on our outward appearances for others' sake to view us either. It's, the human heart is, a, is bizarre here, right? We want ourselves to look good so others will think we look good so that then it's messed up, isn't it? We, we want to surround ourselves with people who are successful. But Jesus, he went to the sick, he went to the hurt, he went to the poor, he went to the outcast, and we should too. We all need this. We all, we, all need to, we all need rescue. I think we're guilty, all of us, of relying on the world's definition of what success would look like, right? We want to look at Eliab. We want to be as good-looking, tall. For my sake, I want to be good-looking, tall, handsome, fresh clothes, and be, you know, look good, smell good, go to a feast. That's, that's the outward appearances, but God's not looking at that. He's looking at the hearts. And I think the way this might play out for us is we compare ourselves to others. I personally don't, I don't have... Instagram or Facebook or anything like that, but I, I understand it to be a temptation to look at what other people are doing and then compare that to your own life and think badly. Like, oh, the outward appearances on that person are great. How come I can't have that? How come I can't go on that vacation? How come I can't have my kids do this cool thing that other people's kids are doing? I, that's how messed up we get. Me myself, I'll confess that I will judge myself through my kids not measuring up to other people's kids. I'm relying on outward appearances. Oh, wow, that kid's really fast. Why isn't my kid faster? The outward appearances. God's looking at the heart. The world's definition of who the king would have been, of who Jesus was supposed to be, was this guy who booted out the Romans, right? But that's not who he was. He had a humble heart. He had a humble heart, and he suffered. That, that's, remember, we go back to the road to Emmaus. He says, how foolish you are. The Messiah had to suffer. Don't look on outward appearances. And finally, I think this third one is we need to allow the Spirit. It says the Spirit rushed on David. We need to allow the Spirit to rush on us or to allow it in your life, what that might look like. And for many many of you, I happen to know some of your stories. For some of you, I know your story and that you might feel unworthy. You feel lackluster. You don't have it together, so how is God going to use me? I don't know the answer to all of these questions that are theologically complex, so how could I share the gospel with somebody? How could I come to God? I think you need to allow the Spirit in your life in the same way the, 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 the Spirit is rushing to David and is with him from that day forward. The Spirit wants to rest on you and allow it to work through you, through broken people like you and I. Don't you know that David was broken? Don't you know that David 
is messed up. His life is real, not ideal. But Jesus himself does not correct people when they say he's the son of David. Jesus doesn't distance himself from David. It's because he just didn't distance himself from broken people like you and I. We need him. And uh, I think we'll, we'll sort of wrap up with this, this scripture in 2 Corinthians 1, 20, that I think tied everything together for me, for, for everything today. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All of the scriptures find their fulfillment, their yes in Jesus. All of the scriptures find their yes in him. Now why? That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. So this storyline being fulfilled in Jesus, this is for his glory. Amen? It's amazing that this beautiful story of of David is just one piece of a puzzle of God solving the problem of us choosing sin. And he made him to be sin so that we could have righteousness. And look at this, it goes further. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. In Christ. And has anointed us. He has anointed us. We are anointed. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, Christian, be encouraged. God wants to work through you. And it's not because we ourselves are going to be kings. In the same way that David, it's not about him becoming king. It's about the fulfillment of scripture and the fulfillment of the storyline of the Bible and the person of Jesus. In the same way, our lives are meant to be lived in a way such that they point to the one who is anointed, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ. So be encouraged. Allow the spirit to work in your life. Allow that spirit to change you so that you see as God sees you. Look, allow God to look on your heart and allow you to look on others' hearts, not outward appearances. Let's pray. God, the, the life of David is one that is complex, sometimes unrelatable. But Lord, I, I thank you for this, this text that shows that David was overlooked as we feel overlooked. And God, I, I praise you that you look at the heart. You don't look at the outward appearances. That you look past that. And Lord, just as you look past that, you look into our, in our hearts, and we know that we are guilty of sin. We know that we fall short. So Lord, I ask that you would create in us a clean heart, and that we would allow you to become, become the atoning sacrifice such that we can enjoy righteousness with you. We praise you that all of the promises of God find their yes in you. God, be with us this week. Be with us as we try not to look at outward appearances and we allow the Spirit to work and change us, allow the Spirit to change our hearts. Lord, we praise you for who you are. In the Son of David's name, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and gather. Amen.